Rory Sutherland is the vice chairman of Ogilvy & Mather Group, one of the largest and most renowned advertising agencies in the world. Rory started the Behavioral Insights team and spends his days applying behavioral economics and evolutionary psychology to solve problems that traditional advertising agencies haven't been able to. He's the author of Alchemy, The Magic of Original Thinking in a World of Mind-Numbing Conformity, and more recently, co-author of Transport for Humans, a book about adapting transport to more human wants and needs, using behavioral science as a tool for design. Today we talked about good storytelling, the brilliance of irrationality, the dangers of institutional behavior, and air fryers. <laughs> Hope you enjoy. Rory, as it, as it often does, I think it makes sense to start at the beginning here. So before we dive into lots of fun stuff that we were just chatting about earlier, I'm, I'm interested in hearing what attracted you to advertising in the first place. You know, you've been at Ogilvy for quite some time now. And yeah, started uh, as... 30, 33 years. I started as a graduate trainee. Got I was you. a classics graduate at, at university. And why did I decide to apply to advertising? Well, interestingly, I did four years at university, the fourth year being a teacher training course, effectively. And I thought at the time that I'd like to become a, a teacher. And what frightened me was I, I then spent the middle, the middle semester of that particular year teaching in a school, which I enjoyed. I really enjoyed it, in fact. I, mean, I really enjoyed teaching. The, the, the only downside was I realised that if I went straight into teaching from university, I'd end up spending my entire working life or my entire adult life in educational establishments. And it just struck me as a bit limiting. And there's very good advice, funnily enough, from someone at university who said he was an academic and he, I knew his nephew. And he said that a university is a very good place to be at the beginning of your life and a very good place to be at the end of your life. But you really don't want to be there in the middle of your life. I think, I, And it was very interesting because he was an elderly. I think he was a fairly distinguished mathematician, in fact. And uh, he'd said that, that he enjoyed being there surrounded by young people in his 50s, well, 60s and 70s. He enjoyed being at uni a university when he was in his 20s. But he said the midlife there isn't so great. And I suddenly thought, OK, I can't really just go school, university, back to school. And so why did I choose advertising? I'd always been interested by it. I suppose, being honest about it, it struck me as offering a reasonable degree of freedom of employment. In other words, it wasn't one of those places where you had to wear a suit and turn up at, you know, 7.30 in the morning without fail. Right. And also, let's be absolutely candid about it, it was one of the few areas where if you draw that Venn diagram of looks quite interesting, can be quite remunerative, you know, it does sit in that overlap which is by no means that big. You know, there are a lot of very, very lucrative jobs you can do, which can be extraordinarily boring. You know, and there are also a lot of very interesting jobs you can do where you earn nothing. But there isn't that big an overlap between the two. And advertising, for me, sat, sat very much there. Now, I mean, lucky in a sense, because probably in 1988, one of the things that would have sat in the middle was journalism. And of course, there's been really a catastrophe for the financial rewards in journalism now. You know, it's been pretty much, you know, a, a, a disaster area. And so I, I, I applied in the middle of my doing teacher training to about five agencies. I think I got it. No, maybe I probably applied to 10. I got interviews at four. I got second interviews at three. And then I ended up getting a job at what was then called Ogilvy and Mather Direct, which was the direct response wing of the Ogilvy ad agency. And that was really where my interest in behavioral science, although I didn't call it that back then, that's where it came from. Because of course, direct response advertising is measurable. You typically, in fact, I mean, in fairness to the direct response advertising fraternity, they developed the randomized control trial and the AB test about 70 years before medicine started using it. So they were very, very advanced in the whole business of, of testing and quantification and measurement of the randomized control trial. The way you did it in the Edwardian era in the 19th century was you, you had postal coupons on your advertising. And according to what the creative was, you put a different code in the coupon. So you could tell which creative approach had generated the re reply and you could compare which creative messages were therefore most effective at generating response. And very quickly, you start to learn that the things that affect people's behavior are not the things that uh, University of Chicago economists like to believe 
other things which actually influence their behaviour. In fact, the very notion of utility maximisation is fairly rapidly shown to be a nonsense if you perform <laughs> any kind of uh, direct response advertising testing. And very small, you know, very small creative tweaks, you know, essentially trivial things will sometimes have a very large effect. And sometimes things which you think should have a large effect, like reducing the price or the interest rate on a loan, have a surprisingly small effect. And so very quickly, I became convinced that there was a whole missing science, which was what you might have called behavioural economics. It was the science of how people really behave in practice, as distinct from how we think they should behave in theory, or indeed as distinct from how they think they themselves behave. Because the other great insight is not only that people do not behave in a way that's consistent with mainstream microeconomic theory. It's also true to say that people don't really understand why they do the things they do and their ability to predict what they will do, given a set of imagined circumstances, often proves to be surprisingly inaccurate. You know, there are all those wonderful things like effect forecasting that have emerged from behavioural economics, that people imagine things will make them either happier or people are very bad at estimating the effect things will have on their own ultimate happiness, for example. Sure. You know, one one thing you talk a lot about is the way you frame a product and how it can totally change a consumer's or a customer's perception and behavior, right? So with, mm-hmm. with that in mind, what would you say is the secret to good storytelling? That's a very interesting question. So there's something about the human brain, I don't fully understand how, I have read various books on it, which means that stories are somehow the PDF files of the human brain. They're how we, they're a format in which we store and share information. And they contain within them, I would say, certain recognizable patterns. I mean, there's a famous book which proposes that there are really only seven plots, you know, that Shakespeare used six of them, I think, you know, and it is, you know, slaying the dragon or whatever it may be, you know. But there's something about these stories which, for evolutionary reasons we don't fully understand, gives them a particular stickiness. And undoubtedly, what is fascinating is the stories we hear will affect our behavior, even though the information they contain is more or less irrelevant to the decision at hand. A little example I always give, occasionally you come across a fact which, for reasons you can't quite explain, changes your attitude to something quite dramatically. A little little example I always give is, I don't know whether you're a fan of KFC or not, but it's a fascinating fact that Colonel Sanders founded KFC when he was 65 years old. I didn't know that. Now, he had spent his life effectively perfecting a kind of pressure-frying method for chicken with 11 herbs and spices. And only at the age of 65, having established his own restaurant, did he have the idea of franchising the recipe and the method of production to other outlets. Now, weird though it may seem, I would contend that having told you that story, your attitude to KFC and your propensity you eat there will have slightly changed. Sure, sure. Because it's, you know, now, now for some reason you have a mental hook, which is a story around, you know, someone devoting his life to perfect, perfecting a form of cooking, which will change the taste of the food. And this, this can, I, I never remember the, the chap's name, and I probably can't pronounce it correctly, but he's famous for saying the map is not the territory. And I will find it out for you now because it drives me nuts that I can never remember his name, <laughs> although it is quite a strange name. And the map is not the territory. Alfred Kozimski, I imagine is how you pronounce it, but it could be pronounced in a slightly different way. But he used to do this wonderful experiment to make this point that actually we don't just essentially eat with our... We don't only taste with our mouths or with our noses. And his great experiment was he'd go around to the front row of a lecture hall and hand out biscuits. He'd even take one himself and sit there munching away happily on the biscuits. And everybody was perfectly content. And then he'd take the biscuits out of the bag and reveal they were, in fact, dog biscuits. And at that juncture, I think one person, in fact, vomited. I think there was a case where a student vomited. But people would spit the food into their hands. They'd rush off to the restrooms, basically to void their mouths of whatever it was they were still chewing. 
And he made this point to say, you know, we don't, you know, you were there contentedly eating these biscuits perfectly happily. And the second I revealed something about them, you know, a new piece of information, the taste changed. You could no longer enjoy them. In fact, it, it became repellent. And it's a very, very good, I think, experiment into sort of phenomenology and human perception, which is that what we respond to is meaning. We don't really respond. We're not like atoms in that we don't respond to objective, measurable, definable criteria or characteristics of things. Sure. We, we react. Evolution has given us a kind of black box in between reality and perception which I think it's fair to assume is designed to improve our fitness in whatever whatever way you define evolutionary fitness, you know, whether it's reproductive fitness, capacity to survive, and so forth. And it makes sense. It's, it's, it's an operating system, if you like, just as you have. Uh, there's a great book by a guy which is called The Case Against Reality, and it's written by a guy I think called... Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> um, lucky I've got Google here. I'm going senile. And I will remember it. It is by, and I will tell you right now, I've got a copy of the book, actually. It's by Donald Hoffman. Don Hoffman. Oh, sure. And he he makes the point that in, it's not in our evolutionary interest to perceive reality in a way that's objective or accurate. Evolution doesn't give a shit about accuracy. It only cares about survival and fitness. And therefore, it makes obvious sense that our brains would represent or represent, depending on whether you want to hyphenate it or not, reality to us in a way, not that is most conducive to accurate appraisal, but that's most conducive towards evolutionary fitness. And that might in many cases mean providing us with some fairly distorted types of perception. For example, it obviously pays us to perceive things, colour, for example, relatively rather than absolutely. It might be the case, and I've heard various debates about this, that instinctively we perceive numbers kind of logarithmically mm. rather than linearly. Now, there's some evidence, I think, from tribes who are enumerate that if you give them, if you have a pile, if you have one grain of rice and you have nine grains of rice and you say to them, bear in mind they're enumerate, can you make a pile of rice that's halfway, but midway between these two? They don't put down five grains of rice. They tend to put down three. And, you know, in a sense, it would make a lot of sense that we perceive things logarithmically because in terms of survival importance, there's a huge difference between being attacked by one lion or two lions, whereas the difference between attacked by 97 lions and 103 is relatively trivial. You're going to die in, in any case. Okay. So once you accept the fact that you don't we don't perceive the world objectively and therefore meaning is not objectively derived and emotion is driven by meaning and emotion drives behavior it's a nonsense to try and design the world to improve human decision making or behavior on the assumption of objective perception now we accept, we regard that as completely acceptable what i'm what I mean by hacking human perceptual anomalies, we regard it as completely acceptable if you're applying it to a television, which hacks the fact that higher primates, humans, gorillas, few other apes, only see red, green and blue. Therefore, there's no point in having part of the television producing, for example, other colours, because you can produce the same effect of any colour in the visible spectrum, more or less, by simply mixing red, green, and blue. Okay? So your television, you, you might have bought a television and Samsung say it produces a billion colours. It doesn't produce a billion colours. It produces three, but the varying ratio between those three colours causes the brain to generate, you know, a billion different colours. Okay? It's a total hack, okay? If you tried to produce an objective television that was not species-specific, okay, so if you tried to produce an objective television, it would, I mean, it'd be impossible, okay? So the, the reason, funnily enough, the television works is because it's species-specific. Your dog thinks your television picture is totally unrealistic, okay? As And birds or snakes, which detect, I think, infrared, and birds detect ultraviolet, would regard your television as completely washed out, 
But as a human, it does the job because it simply produces the colours we can detect. And so we regard that as perfectly acceptable in television design. When we design physical objects, we regard it as perfectly obvious that we should design chairs for our evolved human shape. You know, we should put steering wheels in cars. We didn't evolve hands to steer cars. We designed steering wheels to work with the physical equipment we've got. Okay, unless you're Elon Musk, in which case you've decided some sort of weird (laughs) real thing is doing the job, which I I do regard as a bit weird. Okay, I'm not quite happy with that. Yet strangely, when it comes to other facets of the brain, we regard solving for perception as kind of cheating. We'd much rather solve for an imaginary objective species than solve for humanity. And I find that strange. And so you tend to have either you either solve for homo economicus, which is, you know, economic neoliberal kind of Chicago school economic thought is now so well deeply embedded in business schools and corporations and government that people will tend to assume that, okay, if we assume this average representative agent of homo economicus and we solve for him, and it probably is male biased, by the way, then that's that's the optimal solution for the market as a whole. Okay, or the other mistake we make is we go and do market research and we take what people say completely literally. And the truth of the matter is one of the other evolutionary tricks in the black box is that we don't know there's a black box. In that we have a very strong instinct to think and believe that we know how we decide, think, choose and act. Whereas, in fact, the real reasons may be actually, again, hidden from introspection. Got you. Got you. You know, I'd I'd like to touch on that just through the lens of institutional behavior. You've spoken a lot about Mm. institutional behavior containing a lot of, I think, stupidity, right? It depends how you design the decision making within the institution. Okay. I'll just caveat that because there are ways you can design groups where the diversity of the group actually improves decision making. And if you want to understand that, read a book by Matthew Syed called Rebel Ideas. And it, and, and, but equally, there are ways in which you can design collective decision-making, which almost creates a lowest common denominator effect. Where, where you know, it, it is, I mean, you get all these biases like defensive decision-making or even the worst case scenario, the Abilene effect, where lots of people end up doing something they don't really want to do because they believe everybody else wants to do them. Erroneously, in some cases. And that's called the Abilene Paradox. I think there's a piece in, it in Wikipedia. And it all comes from a story told in the 70s about a guy who, the, the whole group of them were sitting around playing cards perfectly happily. And then somehow the idea became conceived that everybody wanted to go into Abilene for the evening. And they went in, drove 60 miles along dusty roads, had a bloody awful time, and then drove 60 miles back. And someone said, well, I never wanted to go in the first place. And then, well, neither did I. And that's a kind of, you know, collective insanity, which can take hold as well. Would you say bureaucracy is at total odds with outcome-driven decision-making? Yeah, well, I, this is where I think the question arises, which is never mind rationally, but even instinctively, are we trying to make decisions that are good or are we making suboptimal decisions that are less good but easier to defend? And we, we have this thing which has become almost universal i think which is we think that quality of reasoning is a proxy for quality of outcome and therefore that things that are well reasoned and well thought out will work and things that don't make sense will fail Mm. now all i can say is empirically there are plenty of examples of things that make perfect sense that work in theory but don't work in practice And equally, there is an extraordinary profusion, I think, of things which no sane person would have done them in advance. Everything from the Dyson vacuum cleaner to Red Bull to Nespresso to Five Guys to Zoom to Uber, okay, where those things are kind of a Columbus's egg. Are you you familiar with the notion of the Columbus's egg? I'm not. Okay. It's the idea... Something you again Google it because there's quite a lot written about sure. it. I, I'd never heard of the phrase until five days ago. It's something which is only obvious in retrospect, mm. and it comes from the fact that a load of people started dissing Columbus to his face, supposedly, and saying, "Look, anybody would have discovered that passage. It was just a matter of time. We all knew it was there." 
And Columbus was slightly miffed by this. And so he challenged everybody to balance an egg on its end on the table. And nobody could do it. And Columbus simply gives the egg a tap, slightly dents the ends of the egg, and it stands upright. And the point he's making is, you know, there are plenty of things which are obvious in retrospect, but aren't obvious in advance. And so one thing I noticed, I think, that distinguishes what you might call a creative mindset, and that would embrace everybody from advertising creatives to comedians to, to entrepreneurs, actually. What you notice is that people with a bureaucratic mindset want to know what everybody else knows. They want to know what knowledge is common knowledge, because that's the way you defend the decision. And you make sure that you're making a decision that no one's going to attack you for in the event of failure. Entrepreneurs are bizarrely uninterested in that kind of knowledge. They're in, and similarly with comedians, they're interested in the things they notice that nobody else notices, because that's where comparative advantage lies. And so there are these two spaces. It, it's part of, I suppose, what mathematicians might call the exploit-explore trade-off. You know, it's do you spend all your time optimizing on what you already know, which is a very safe career strategy. Because if what you know is what everybody else knows, your decisions will always seem perfectly sensible by the lights of all your colleagues and bosses and everybody else. Or if you're an entrepreneur, do you argue that the basis of real entrepreneurial activity is an insight that isn't commonly known? It might be obvious in retrospect, but it simply isn't obvious in advance. And so, you know, comedians are in, you know, a lot of comedy lies around just noticing things. You know, comedians notice things which we may be aware of, but we've never commented on or spotted the significance of or interpreted. And it is that interesting distinction between the bureaucratic mindset, which is collate all the information that is publicly and freely available and make an optimal decision around that. Whereas the comedian or the entrepreneur's mindset is, I just want to know what nobody else knows. Because my job isn't to be right. My job is to be less wrong than somebody else. Mm. That's and I just find that very, very interesting. I think it'd be wrong of us not to touch on the new book. Um, you know, looking at this now through the lens of transport, which is what you wrote about with Pete Dyson. Fantastic book, by the way, to anyone listening. Oh, it's thank called you. My goodness, yeah. Transport for Humans. You can get a copy where you get your books. You mentioned the ways in which an engineer measures success, right? You were touching on this earlier with, you know, some earlier misconceptions about advertising, you know, maybe giving examples of, of speed, of journey time, of, of efficiency. So without giving away all your secrets here, what would you say the right way to measure success is when we're talking about less subjective criteria, maybe in transportation? More very criteria, including those which cannot be quantified. Because we have SI units for speed and SI derived units for speed and distance and, you know, punctuality and time. Okay. But we don't have SI derived units for what humans care about. So the mistake you might be making in transport is trying to produce a television that produces a million colors rather than generating the colors that people really care about. Now, I'll give you an example of this, okay? One, I think quite often this effort emerges from false correlations. You will see a significant correlation among air, air passengers between punctuality and passenger satisfaction, okay? But I think if you look at it in a disaggregated form, what I think you'll see is that air travelers, that is mostly driven by the fact that people who are two hours late are really sodding pissed off, okay? They're really sodding angry, okay? I think you also see that people who are 10 minutes late don't really care, okay? No one travels by plane without building in a 30-minute margin of error, really. And 10 minutes late seems to most people to be kind of fair. You know, you haven't really dicked around with me. Shit happens. It's probably beyond your control. You know, maybe there was a bit of a holding pattern before we landed at O'Hare or whatever it was, okay? No one's angry with an airline that deposits them on the ground alive 10 minutes late. I'm sure there's a great correlation if you if you average it all out between punctuality and satisfaction, but that's driven by the people who've been a bomb, you know, a day late or four hours late or whatever, missed a wedding. Okay. Now, in the same way, okay, if you look at a rail network and you measure, you look at a rail freight network, you can just measure, you know, does the stuff arrive on time? Okay. That's more or less what you need to measure. Now. Freight doesn't care whether, doesn't make a distinction between 
I keep moving very slowly for a period or I'm totally stationary for 20 minutes because humans find the latter much more frustrating than the former. For instance, if they're on any form of mass transit or indeed if they're driving, okay, you'd much rather be in a car rolling along at 15 miles an hour than actually drive at 30 for half that length of time and then be stationary for half the length of time. Okay, just in terms of the frustration, uncertainty, panic, emotional state. Equally, once you have a certain amount of frequency in a, in a rail system or a tram system, let's say, or even a bus network, to be honest, punctuality doesn't matter. Now, we, we, Pete and I have an argument about whether it's 20 minutes, whether it's 15, whether it's 10. But if there's a bus arriving every 10 minutes or there's a tram arriving every 10 minutes, you don't really bother with a timetable anymore, do you? Okay, right. I have I have two railway stations near me. One of them has a train about every 15 minutes. I deliberately, or actually a little more than that, it's something like 50, 10 to 15 minutes. The other one has two trains an hour. With the second one, I actually care about the timetable and I set out to catch a specific train. With the first station, I deliberately try not to know the timetable because it's stressy. Okay. If I have a specific train in, in mind when I set out for the station and then I get stuck in traffic, I'll start getting anxious about whether I make the train or not. So my, my favoured solution is just not to know the timetable, turn up, catch the next train that pitches up. If I do end up with a 13-minute wait, which is about the worst you get on average, okay, I go and have a cup of coffee and I don't care about it. Mm. Now, what that means is that, you know, to the human brain, there's a non-linear thing going on here, which is we do care about punctuality if it's an infrequent service and we've set out to catch a specific train. To be honest, what we care about if the service is more frequent is not punctuality, but simply regularity. You know, sometimes, by the way, late trains are good, don't forget, because you find yourself catching a train you otherwise would have missed. Now, you know, a, a totally human-centric transport system would factor that in. You know, yes, a few people were mildly pissed off because the train arrived five minutes late, but not to the point of actual fury. Equally, 26 people on that journey were able to catch an earlier train than they thought they'd make, and so were actually perfectly happy about it. In fact, positively, you know, positively gonzo. And so understanding this thing that because it's totally fatuous, unless you believe that objective criteria translate directly into human satisfaction, happiness, propensity to make train journeys, propensity not to take the car, etc. Unless you believe that's true, and it obviously isn't, then spending all your time trying to optimize objective metrics is basically you know, by the way, you know, at the very at the very out extremes, it has a huge value. Don't have many flights that are hideously late. Very good policy. But starting to then you hit the law of diminishing returns, I think. And then you're chasing things where the job becomes more and more difficult as you know, I mean, in terms of making trains faster, you're up against the laws of physics and air resistance and so on. OK, the job becomes more and more difficult and the actual the behavioral effects of what you're doing um, and the emotional result of what you're doing becomes more and more nugatory and trivial. And so, you know, I think, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that engineers should be banned from operating rail systems. I think that getting things basically right is important. There are knock-on effects to late trains too. We shouldn't forget that, okay? If you're running a system, you know, there are all sorts of factors to be considered. You know, the efficient use of rolling stock is helped if trains run faster rather than slower. I get all that. But I'm merely suggesting that at some point, putting Wi-Fi on the train so that people enjoy the journey and find it productive might be a better way to get people onto the Acela rather than making the Acela faster. Mm. Now, interestingly, you're in Chicago. Uh, now, actually, Chicago, interestingly, you've got a reasonable kind of... Well, you've got the L, of course, haven't yeah. you? You've got, a, yeah. you've got reasonable metropolitan... I mean, to be honest, you're going to end up flying a lot in Chicago. There isn't a nearby mega city. That's true. But and there are a few city pairs in the US, San Francisco and LA being the most obvious. I think, you know, San Antonio and Austin would be two others, okay, where, you know, they're a distance apart where actually a high, you know, reasonably high-speed rail connection would make sense. And so, you know, one interesting question is, how do you get people out of their cars and onto that rail system? Americans are particularly reluctant 
I think, to get out of their cars for those kind of journey lengths. Okay, part of that's just habit, by the way. You know, I mean, if you've never lived anywhere with high-speed rail, you know, you're, you know, you don't really understand what the benefits are. But I would argue that, you know, for business people, the ability to work on the train for, for an hour and a half or two hours is, is in fact the decisive factor. It's not speed. You know, because the, the decision there is, look, I've got a nice car. It's probably not that bad of a drive from San Antonio to Austin. I've never done it. Um, I did think of going by train. I didn't have a, a rental car and I was in I was in Austin. I discovered that the train only runs once a day in each direction and takes something like eight hours. Oh, jeez. I, 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 mean, I, I mean, it's absurd. I mean, I, I, the average speed is like 38 miles an hour. Oh, my God. And it, it's an Amtrak. It's a long-distance Amtrak train, which happens to stop at both places. But I mean, there, you know, there is a clear case there for some sort of high-speed rail solution. But actually, what gets people out, you know, what matters is the behaviour. You know, goods don't have a choice of how they travel. Goods don't have a hissy fit if you send them by FedEx, not UPS. You know, goods aren't sensitive to status. They aren't sensitive to certainty. They don't have the same emotional baggage that humans do. And at some point, if you're designing for the human, the way to get those people out of their cars is probably to say, we've got super fast Wi-Fi and you get a desk for the journey. So, you know, you get home and you finish your email rather than getting home with, you know, 170 unread missives. You know, that's probably the way you, you know, that's probably what matters to people, really. Interesting trade-off there. I mean, one thing that's peculiar is, which is very fast, okay, short-haul air travel, okay, is very, very fast, but it's a very poor quality of time. So the problem with air travel, actually, is you're forever being dicked around, okay? So, I mean, this has got worse probably since 9-11. But effectively, if you board a relatively slow train that will get you there in three hours, it is three hours, but it's three relatively high-quality hours in which you can read, work, watch a film, do what you like. Sure. Okay? The great problem with short-haul, short-distance air travel is you're forever being shunted from pillar to post. So it's something like check-in, maybe you check in your luggage, security, lounge, shops, gate, wait at the gate. I mean, it is an extraordinarily poor quality use of time. And so what was interesting is that people were taking the Eurostar to Paris from London, even when it was about three hours, 20 minutes before they built the fast section of track, not because it was faster than the plane, it emphatically wasn't, but because it was inordinately a higher quality experience and more productive, well, more productive on the way out and more enjoyable on the way back, realistically. Mm. So to to get into more miscellaneous territory here, and this is probably a bit more of a personal indulgence, just because I, I really Go can't on. help myself. It's it's so timely. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the Facebook rebrand to Meta. Yeah, um, crikey. Okay, so <sighs> there is an irony there, I think, in the whole thing, which is that my own view is that we already have 70% of a metaverse and it's actually video conferencing mm. and that it's a vastly more significant technology than anyone's acknowledged properly. And the reason, now this, this is the thing that bothers me, okay? We will have hundreds of conferences now for the next five years talking about the metaverse, okay? Because it's new and fashionable and it's you know a trend and it's a thing and it allows futurologists to spout bollocks. Whereas how we use video conferencing to reorder how knowledge the knowledge economy works, which strikes me as a much more relevant question, okay, will receive about 4% of the attention that the metaverse gets. Now, the reason for that, I think, is slightly peculiar, which is that most, most problems or most, most innovation, okay, uh, this, I'm going to be bold here, most innovation starts off as a technological problem and ends up as a marketing problem. Mm. So the first thing you've got to do is get the technology to a stage where it is actually not shit. Okay. Right. Now, for a long time, video conferencing existed, but it wasn't really good enough for a variety of reasons. It, it, it was too flaky for you confidently to say, I'm going to hold a high stakes business meeting on Skype. Okay. And then Microsoft bought Skype and then made it even worse. As well. <laughs> okay. It also had the wrong model, by the way, because it had the phone call model, not the meeting room model, mm -hmm. which was totally inappropriate for B2B 
communication. Because I, I wouldn't even make an outbound video call to a junior member of my team because I don't know what they're doing. And it's extremely intrusive. Okay. So the model of here's a meeting room in, 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 in the metaverse, you all come along and join, is much more conducive to business interactions than, than the Skype model of the telephone call plus video, you know. I mean, I wouldn't ring the chief executive of, you know, Procter & Gamble, okay, on a video call any more than I'd dress up in a clown costume and jump into his office and shout, surprise! You know, because it's just a completely ridiculous, insensitive, you know, rude thing to do. It's inconsiderate, okay? Now, in the same way, in, in the same way, okay, what we needed actually was the problem with video conferencing from about 2017 onwards. And I spoke to Zoom pre-pandemic. I spoke to the marketing director of Zoom. It was actually a problem of adoption, collective adoption and network effects, not a problem of technology. Zoom didn't get any better in 2020, okay? What happened was that it, its use became normalised. And it became normalized at scale, simultaneously, across geographies, across all levels of seniority. Now, previously in 2019, if you had a Luddite boss who hated video conferencing, that meant 10 of you weren't doing any video conferencing. Because minority rule would mean he'd go, no, I'm flying to Frankfurt. That's how we do business in this company. Okay, Even if there was only a one-hour meeting in Frankfurt. Suddenly, we were forced to adopt a different equilibrium state for a period of about a year and now what's happened as i put it very succinctly i think which is that in 2019 okay flying to frankfurt for the day or in your case be you know flying to new york for the day okay flying to new york was kind of coke and doing a video call was kind of dr pepper okay and what happened during lockdown was effectively suddenly the video call was Dr. Pepper and the trip to Frank. Sorry, the video call was now Coke and the trip to Frankfurt was kind of Dr. Pepper. And it was simply uh, it was simply just a social norm shift. It was, I mean, this shows absolutely the power of norms in behaviour, which is people's behaviour is really driven by two very strong forces, among others, one of which is habit and the other one is social copying. And it's always much safer in a business or institutional setting to, to um, go with the flow, go with the default. Because if you do what everybody else does, it doesn't look like a decision, so you won't get blamed for anything. And I, it does interest me. I, by the way, I mean, it, it shouldn't surprise us that businesses were so slow to pick up on this because businesses, because they require collective consensus, and, and because they're riven by a defensive decision-making, are always slow with technology. So, I mean, you probably, I don't know if this is true, the University of Chicago probably has some pretty good tech, actually. I'm, I'm, I think I'm fair. But universities, for example, or businesses, would have you plug a laptop into a monitor using those strange things you had to screw together. Do you remember those? Oh, the VGA cables, yeah. Yeah, VGA, thank you. Okay, yeah. so businesses were using VGA cables like nine years after consumers had moved on to HDMI, right? Okay, and it's the same kind of thing, that because there's a kind of lowest common denominator effect in business behaviour, changing business collective behaviour is much, much slower than changing individual behavior and you know the vga cable is the perfect you know emblem of the fact that you know and so my kids had kind of cottoned on to video calling to a degree mm. you know well before because kids are kids they just you know they just you know effectively they try everything they're relatively fearless with technology the problem would have been okay in 2019 if i'd suggested saying let's not fly to frankfurt let's do a video call well first of all if our competing agencies had flown to see the client and we met the client on video. We risked looking like the lazy guys who are not really serious about this business. They just did a video call. So there was the costly signaling element, but there was also the element of what's your worst case scenario. Okay. Which is if you'd flown to Frankfurt and then there'd been an air traffic control strike or the flight was late. Okay. Everybody would have blamed British airways or French air traffic controllers or whoever was to blame. Okay. They wouldn't blame you for flying because that was the normal thing to do. If you suggested a video conference and the technology went wonky or the client was always on mute or you started pixelating badly, right? everybody blamed you because you'd chosen the video call rather than flying to Frankfurt. And so in any business setting, 
going with the preset default has a disproportionate bias in its favor. Because as I say, look, in B2C, we try and minimize the risk of regret. And in B2B decisions, we try and minimize the risk of blame. Hmm. So B2B behavior is more reputation. I mean, consumer behavior cares about reputation. You know, one of the reasons nobody buys a really obscure car is that if you buy a really obscure car and it breaks down, everybody blames you. Okay, you know, if you buy a F-150 or whatever and it breaks down, everybody calls you unlucky and they blame Ford. But if you go and buy a Zonga pickup truck and it catches fire, everybody goes, well, it serves you right for not buying a Ford F-150. Right. So, you know, that 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 kind of thing applies even in consumer decision making. But in B2B decision making, where the upside gain is usually goes to the shareholders and the downside blame goes to you. OK, we become disparate. And, and Gerd Gigerenza is the great writer on this, on defensive decision making, which is we try and minimize the worst case scenario outcome rather than optimizing the expected outcome. One more to wrap us up, Rory, and maybe mm-hmm. one you get quite often i would imagine do you have a favorite brand oh my goodness lots of them yeah now first of all i want to say that the idea of favorite brand is a bit is a bit iffy because there are a few brands that inspire kind of cult-like loyalty and and motivation you know and the, the ones that are cited are always apple harley davidson Nike, you know, it's reel out the usual suspects. And they're in slightly unusual categories. And it's not that easy to replicate those effects in certainly, you know, if you're a, you know, hemorrhoid preparation cream, you know, (laughs) people aren't going to make quite so public their, you know, their devotion to your brand, however valuable you may be. So, so that whole thing of a favorite brand is, is a bit dangerous. Let me explain why, because the principal money you get back we spend most of our time making hair splitting distinctions between adidas and nike okay or new balance or i'm I'm showing how cool with the kids i am yeah (laughs) okay okay but to be honest the real value those brands mostly drive is by dint of being a brand not by not being a brand okay so yeah okay there are distinctions between samsung and lg but samsung and lg have much more in common in terms of who buys them and the premium they can command they have much more in common with each other than they have that distinguishes them. I mean, I could probably describe distinctions between the Samsung and LG brand, but I'd be splitting hairs. But on the other hand, when it comes to buying a TV on Amazon, okay, I'm looking at spending 800 bucks for the Samsung or LG television. Whereas when Amazon brings me up the Zuga Wu, you know, strange Chinese owned brand, probably shipped direct from Shenzhen TV. I'm not thinking of spending the same amount of money on that because there isn't the same amount of reputational skin in the game. Okay. And so, you know, it's dangerous to say the favorite brand because I like brands because when I buy brands, they generally don't let me down. Okay. So the fact that I like brands is much more important economically than my particular adherence to, I have a few things I weirdly love. Okay. There are a few categories I love, which are, things which are what I call Columbus's eggs, you know, Mm. the thing where you only realize how great it is. So I've got a Japanese style toilet. It's actually manufactured by Jibari, which is a Swiss firm. They claim they invented it before the Japanese, but it's a toilet that washes your own ass with a jet of water. (laughs) And let me tell you this, nobody (laughs) wants one, but once you've had one, there's no turning back. (laughs) Air fryers. Okay. I don't have you got an air fryer? No, I don't have an air fryer. Get yourself straight onto Amazon there because you're <laughs> about to enter air fryer world and it's transformative. Okay. It's a form of cooking, which is the only way I can describe it, it's a kind of unmicrowave. But it actually gives the impression of fried food without using any fat. So it's healthy, gotcha. but it's also fast, convenient. It's kind of magical. Uh, um, and actually, air fryers have gone massive in the uh, in the US. Chromebooks, actually. I mostly buy Google's own brand of Chromebook, but the Chromebook is a device with such beautiful simplicity and ease where, again, nobody wants it before they own one. But once you own one, my principal device that I use day to day is a Chromebook. Um, Now, there's only one other guy, Jason Calacanis, I think. I had a podcast with him and he similarly, his entire office is Chromebook run. Wow. It was amusing because WPP got hacked about two and a half years ago. 
And, you know, I, I think they had to buy 20,000 new laptops for some part of the business because they'd all been corrupted by some hideous Trojan or worm or whatever it is from some Ukrainian operation demanding 76 Bitcoin or something. They, um, uh, the brilliant thing was I was sitting there throughout the thing saying, I'm terribly sorry, but I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. The whole system is working perfectly. <laughs> On my, me as the lone Chromebook user, I bought, I've just bought a Ford Mustang Mach-E, which I absolutely adore. And I I have to say the Mustang brand, okay, if you're a marketing guy, if you look at the marketing history of Mustang, it was the best, it's the best selling car, new car in history, despite the fact that it was only sold in North America. Wow. Okay, and a lot of the work was done by a guy called. Let me get this right. I think it was Louis. Is it Cheskin of the Color Institute? There were two of them, two very very clever psychologists. Who that now? Hold on. Oh crikey! Let me get the guy right. I think the Futures Company was uh, founded by this guy. He was Ukrainian American, and I've got my names. My name is going absolutely uh, to pieces. But. But what it what it was was I'll remember it in a second. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm I'm going gaga. No, you're fine. Um, but but it was a brilliant piece of psychology, effectively spotting a whole unserved market in the car market. Now I know that Mustang purists have gone nuts that that Ford has attached this brand to an electric car, but it's actually entirely appropriate in my view. Besides, the marketing director of Ford's called Eleanor Ford, and she's a direct descendant of Henry Ford, so she can call wow. the car what the hell she likes, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, I think she has that privilege. You know, she wants to launch a car called the Ford Turd Burglar. I think you know that's <laughs> perfectly within her remit. But the point I'm making is that actually I think Ford were very shrewd to attach the Mustang name to it. Apart from anything else, it's a very interesting combination of you know because in a sense electric cars kind of give you muscle car performance but they're completely clean it's a four-door car it's electric it doesn't have a v8 i get it you know if you're an absolute mustang purist you should be angry about it but equally the entire mustang thing was created by marketers in the first place so you can hardly grumble right so i'm absolutely in love with that i didn't buy a tesla for weird reasons actually as a friend of mine said, you weirdly performed an act of rebellion by buying a Ford. Um, but I, I, I love the look of the car. I love the design. I, I love the, the, you know, the way they've actually, I think, more sensibly than Elon. You know, there are switches for things. Let's face it, okay? I don't want to do everything on a screen. Yeah. You know, I think Elon's, Elon and Steve Jobs both had this kind of compunophobia. Jobs literally had it, Okay. So he, he had a fear of buttons, quite a common phobia. And so a lot of people think that it drove Jobs' design philosophy, that you hated anything that was kind of loose or that moved. But, but see, if you look at Steve's clothing, you never see any visible buttons on his clothing. It's very interesting. You know, if he wears button trousers, they've got a belt covering. It's quite a common phobia, by the way. I have it to a small degree. I'm wearing buttons on my clothing, as you can see. But if there were a loose button on the desk in front of me, I'd have to move it and throw it away before I could continue with this conversation. Because wow. otherwise I'd just find it too disquieting. Huh. Okay. But this compunophobia, you know, I think I, I, I like the fact that Ford probably knows a lot about what should be on a stalk and what should be on a screen and so on. And so, so I, I must say, I've only had it for three months, but I absolutely love it. Other brands I really like, KFC, I've, as I mentioned earlier, once you know that the colonel was 65 when he founded the business, yep. it kind of changes your attitude to the whole thing. If you want a real laugh, by the way, go on YouTube and search for What's My Line, Colonel Sanders. Because at some point in the, I think the late 50s, early 60s, probably the early 60s, it would have been the early 60s, maybe even the mid 60s, Colonel Sanders goes on to What's My Line, you know, the panel game, where you had to guess what people did. Yeah. And he walks in. Okay. Literally, now, probably one of the 10 most recognisable faces in the entire world, okay? He's got his bootlace tie. He's got his white suit, okay? He's got his beard, okay? <laughs> All right. And there are four highly intelligent people playing What's My Line trying to guess what Colonel Sanders does. Okay, and it's the most absurd. It's as if you had Ronald McDonald coming in, you know, <laughs> and people going, "No, I'm sorry, I've got the faintest idea." You know, are you some sort of you? Know, are you in the restaurant business, perhaps? Oh my you know? god! And so it's hysterical because I mean, I mean, Colonel Sanders, you know, is sui generis as a person in terms of his dress, appearance, and everything else. 
And I have, I have a particular love, actually. I'll tell you why, why I, I like this. I have a real love of the QSR category, quick service restaurants. You know, five Guys, McDonald's, Starbucks, all that kind of thing. Because I think it's really interesting to look at through the lens of evolutionary biology almost. You know, variation, discovery, you know, replication. You know, I find I find it a world that's highly satisfactory because actually it's very, very responsive to consumer demand. And then you get that really interesting thing. I, I, you get this in Chicago. By the way, can I just say, Chicago, probably the best city in the world, okay, from a Brit perspective. Really? Don't, don't get this funny idea you've got to move to New York. It's a shithole compared. Okay, let me explain why, okay? New York is is like a European city with all the annoyances, but without the cathedrals, okay? Yeah. And the ability to drink alcohol out of doors. <laughs> At least Chicago is an American city, okay? Mm. The architecture craps on New York for a start, okay? Quality of architecture, you know, never mind, you've got all the Frank Lloyd Wright stuff, you've got all the, you know, Mies stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, craps on New York. But also, you know, if you're going to live in America, live in an American city. Don't live in a city that's pretending to be European, Right. You know, and you've got all that thing of sort of ease of parking, practicality, extraordinary Midwestern civility. So it's very strange. Brits tend to prefer Chicago to New York, and it makes sense when you think about it. It's an interesting Because our frame of reference is different. I mean, Brits, weirdly, like L.A. a lot. Really? Now, objectively, L.A. is kind of a terrible city. It is. Okay? All right? But it's totally unlike anything we've come across before. Uh, yeah, I see. You know, so we just go, well, this is just kind of bonkers, but well, what the hell? Okay, I'll give it a go. Sure. And and, and the other great thing Chicago did, which New York didn't, is you have those little back alleys, okay? So in between the streets, the service of the buildings happens out of sight. Whereas in New York, if you do sit outside a cafe or restaurant, you end up with some massive garbage truck reversing next to you about six feet away. So all the kind of effluvium of the city comes out of the front of the buildings. Whereas in Chicago, you know, you've got the mouth at the front and the rectum at the rear, which is, you know, how it should. But it's just, by the way, architecture is just astoundingly beautiful and lovely. And I absolutely love the place. I mean, I go there and go there like a shot. And some pretty cracking suburbia, let's be honest, too. Oh, yeah. 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 Interesting take. I hadn't heard that before. Rory, you've been incredibly generous with your time. All I can really say is thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks ever so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.